And this, for this, I should be stoned. For the other one, I should have been hung. Welcome to this episode of Life is for the Living. I'm your host, Rebecca Richman. For this episode, we don't really have an overarching theme, but instead are going to present a collection of stories our guests told us that didn't necessarily fit into any other episodes. I'm going to start off with Crusada and her story of the biggest challenge of her life. At the time of the story, she had just divorced her first husband and had been fired from her well-paying job and needed to support her two daughters. Well, I think um, the biggest challenge that I had, it was when um, I had to pick up my stuff and move on with my two little girls. And um, I, don't, I didn't have no family around so it was just me and them it was just the three of us I lost my job I lost my house I lost everything I start from zero I started to work I had a really good job which I lasted because of all the emotions and um, I started to work three jobs for the minimum wage And I started to work 114 hours a week. I remember my my boss used to tell me, you got to hold on to your job. You can't, you, you, you have to be stronger than this. And I couldn't. So I lost my job. When I lost my job, I called my boss and I say, I lost my good job. I say, see, didn't I tell you? He was very upset. I told you to leave those emotions away and focus on your job. Now, what are you going to do? So he sent me to this um, uh, manager over at 7-Eleven. And they sit down and I guess he said, how much you you make per week? I was like, $800. Back in the day, $800 was good money. And, oh, no, he said, for you to make that kind of money in here, you're going to have to work 140 hours, my friend. I was like, ah, are you ready for that? And I'm like, well, I guess. So I, um, they still helped me out. I started a CSR and then they, they got me a job as an assistant in Circle K because they didn't have an opening for manager position. So then I worked um, 40 hours at Circle K. Then I worked 40 hours at 8 p.m., and then I worked 14 hours, no, 24 hours at um, 7-Eleven. I did it for three years until I got, I, I, until I got a management position in Circle K. So in Circle K, um, once I got my manager position, so I left that only with two jobs. So it was a big arrest for me. So it was a bit, uh, uh, still, you know, even at this moment, I, I do not, I go back, I go back in time and I do not know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I did it. I used to, I used to cry because when I was going to my first job, I say, I still have 16 hours ahead of me, right? 
So one day I was so tired, so tired. I didn't know what to do. And uh, I went to my first job and I felt like I was going to pass out. So I went to the bathroom. I asked the manager, I say, hey, can I go to the bathroom? He say, yeah, sure, go ahead. So I went to the bathroom and started crying and crying. And I put myself on the knees and I say, God, please me, please help me. Don't let me, don't let me fail. Wait, you know, pick me up in, in pieces, but pick me up. And I start, you know, um, I start, you know, praying. So I felt like something in my back, like picked me up and took me to the fountain drink. And I start drinking uh, Gatorade limonite, I remember. And believe me, that story, I can go off and on. And I, I drink the, the limonite and I start working like uh, I was a brand new person. And my boss tell me, what did you do, young lady in the bathroom? I said, nothing. Why? Well, did, did, you, did you make drugs? I was like, why would I do that? Say, no, you were just down, depressed, and you couldn't even move or tired. And then you went to the bathroom, and then you come out all happy and energizing. What are you doing to yourself? <laughs> and I was like, nothing. You know, and it's just at the moment, I still, I still can never forget that moment. And let me tell you, the next day I tried that limonade, it did not work. Got to have the special quality of lemonade. <laughs> I, I think it was just God giving me the power, you know, so it, it's, it has been a rough time. But, you know, those moments, uh, I didn't, you know, all the bad moments, I turn it to experience not a sentence of life. Next up, two stories from Makram. The first shows some of the dangers of living in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. The story takes place after he had returned from Madison, Wisconsin with his masters. As part of those studies, he had developed a specific Arabic font, which could be used in microfilm. Back in Iraq, he was teaching at the College of Arts with the hopes of becoming a professor. He had presented this font at a conference and was thinking about marketing it or using it to help advance his career. But then he got pulled out of a class that he was teaching to talk to the dean of the college, who was a friend of his. They sent a student calling me to go and see the dean. And I thought, like, uh, this was a dumb time and maybe I should, I should have said something wrong, like I blasphemed against the bath party or whatever. So I went there and he said, sit down. So I have 30 people in class. What do you mean sit down? What, do you, what, what is it? So you have to sit down. He gave me a copy of my paper. And on my paper, there's a, a, a circle around my name. And a caption says, Nasrani min muhafadat misan, which is a Nasrani meaning a Christian from the governorate of uh, Misan. Misan is a, is a south, southern governorate province. And uh, I wasn't from there, but he, there's a Murad sheikh and a Hanna sheikh. Hanna sheikh went there, but Murad sheikh was in Baghdad. So I was a descendant of Murad sheikh. But anyway, the most important part is Nasrani. That, uh, that, that means somebody is pointing 
to my name as being a Christian. And that's discrimination. And then at that time, during Saddam time, um, Freemason, Freemasons are captured and put to prison and some of them were hanged. So this guy writes on my paper, this is a Freemason act that was started by Nasri Khattar, who is a Lebanese Christian living currently in California. And then in another location, he says another caption, this is a disfiguration of the Arabic letters, the letters of Quran, which is the holy book. And this, for this, I should be stoned. For the other one, I should have been hung. I almost went white, no blood. And I said, like, you're like my dad. What is happening? He said, this guy wants to step on your shoulder to get a Mercedes from the president. That's why he's doing it. And I said, but I only did something that I thought I was going to, uh, to save money for all these maps that are being published in Iraq, that is microfilmed. So what did what did I do? Like I didn't do something wrong. He said, not according to them. And he advised me that I should not even say anything about this paper, even though this was a, a research, pure research paper that was supposed to be used in, in getting me in a higher ranking uh, academic uh, title, like I was going to go to a professor. And I was, all of a sudden, I cannot go to a professor anymore. That's it. I went to assistant professor and stopped, and they, they just didn't uh, allow me to get to a professor here in Loma Linda University. They sent them my, my resume of 10 pages. They gave me a professor title. His second story takes place after they had moved to the U.S. and highlights some of the prejudice that immigrants still face in America. We went on a cruise and two couples and they asked us when you go to the cruise whether you would like to sit in a four uh, seaters or ten seaters and so we discussed among us four that the ten seaters are going to be more elderly people and they're going to be they talk like this so I said no we're going to sit in a four and we were sitting every dinner that we are sitting together, we were cracking jokes also from Iraq and, and we were laughing and everything. And there was this other four people next to us. They are celebrating their 50th anniversary and his, her, their son and his wife came in and might have invited them. After the third day, the guy after after we were laughing so 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 much, the guy comes in, the older guy comes in. I said, "You know, you are the only table that uh, that is having fun in the entire ship." And, and what are you, what are you saying? I said, we're, "We're cracking jokes from the good old days from from Iraq, and you would like to come and join them, bring the bring the table, and we can sit together." Anyway, we made friends with the guy. He ended up he's a Republican. And he has worked seven years in 
in the in the Air Force in Iran, in the American Air Force. So he's a veteran, and he was so proud about him being a descendant of the people who fought in the Civil War. And we started exchanging, you know, uh, uh, emails at that time. There was no calls, e- emails and everything. And, and, and then comes the election. And he would always talk about the immigrants in a negative way and all that. And I'm an, I'm an immigrant and, you know, and, uh, but I, you know, my dad did not come here to fight in the, in the Civil War, but we came late. Anyway, so back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and I got fed up. He's an elderly guy. I have to respect him because he's elderly, because I, am, I was brought up to respect elderly people in Iraq. Not sure about here, because they, the, the, the principles are not the same anymore. So I finally wrote him, Dear Chuck, you have been repeatedly saying that your ancestors came to this country and, and you are a descendant of them and they fought for the civil war to make this great country. And I am not as fortunate as you are because my parents and grandparents did not think like your grandparents did. Uh, but when I came here, some 20 years ago, or it was 15 years ago, I don't remember now, uh, I have taught uh, people from the military, free people from the Air Force, people from the Navy, uh, all these people that came to my classes at, at uh, ESRI. I have been teaching since 1996 in colleges and universities in here. Does that make you less American than, than you? Sincerely, two weeks, nothing comes up. Then after two weeks, he sends me an email. I apologize, finally. That made my day, of course, because I don't like arrogant people bragging about things. Okay, like, it's not my fault. You're trying to compare me with, with your your grand great-grandparents, and they're... They did what they did. My great great parents, they did not come here. It's not my fault. Our fourth story is about a healthcare scare and comes from Debbie. Okay, what happened is I I had cancer. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, I need surgery to remove my one of my kidney. So everything was okay. I've been to a lot of my tests, you know, all the tests and everything. Um, just somehow when I was one day, I was on the table and just one day going to op- uh, open me up. And then my uh, my blood pressure dropped, really mm-hmm. dropped to the dangerous portion. So they said, okay, no, she's not going to operate to her. We're going to stop. So they put me into the, uh, I guess, the room to rest, mm-hmm. recuperate room, right? And I was lucky, one of the nurses noticed my eye, and it's not like it, it was a sign or a stroke, oh. which I did. I have a full-blow stroke in the recovery room. Oh. So, my life changed after that. So, I'm grateful. 
I'm okay. I mean, I, I, I gained back some, you know, ability. So, that's yeah, a, that's yeah. the story of my life. <laughs> that's story, yeah. It yeah. just happened four years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Jack, it was Jackie was so worried. Jackie is Debbie's daughter. Yeah. And she couldn't come. She couldn't come because in Michigan, you know, and because of school and everything, too. But, uh, but I'm grateful. I'm, you know, I'm, I made it, you know, I'm getting back something. But, uh, and, yeah. I mean, there's definitely I, I worse. in a way. Huh? Uh, I was just going to say there's definitely worse places to have a stroke than in a hospital room. No, actually, that's best because it's, yeah. the stroke is the timing. But they took, they took, they realized then is the timing, right? But right. the thing is, is uh, the worst part for me is because during that time, there's one thing, you know how the hospital, the nurse and doctor changed the shift by seven o'clock, eight o'clock? Mm-hmm. They didn't communicate with each other. Oh, no. So they didn't tell the, the new group what to do, whatever. So I suffer a lot in between that, right? Oh, no. When they go look for, oh, what is the, you know, instruction or something, right? So that was, that was terrible. Another thing is, two months later, I still have to call this. I still have to have my surgery. Right. Yeah. And and I um, that's the funny part is when I woke up and I was in such pain and I was like, oh, I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that one, I, I you know, it's really scary. And we will leave you with a funny story about living up to stereotypes from Claudia. Well, I'm a good example of a, a good stereotypical Italian mother for sure. How so? Well, my son Mark had been in California for a year and I was going to visit him. And um, I decided that I was going to bring him something from home. So I made a lasagna, froze it. Day of um, departure, I wrapped it, put it in my carry-on, and actually smuggled it over the border just so that my son could have a taste of mom's lasagna. And he did appreciate it. Now, when I tell this story, I'm often asked, oh, my goodness, what would you have done if, if, you, if you got caught? And I'd always say, well, you know, really, what could they possibly do to me? Um, they'd probably take my lasagna. And I'd tell them, please, it's homemade, fresh pasta, homemade. Bake it for one hour at 3.50 and enjoy it. Don't throw it away. (laughs) And that's it for this episode of Life is for the Living. The next episode is the last in our season. We will continue the tradition we started in season one, where we asked our guests to leave us with some type of advice about how to live life. If you have any suggestions about future guests, topics, or just want to chat in general, you can reach us at, at lifeisforthel on Twitter and Instagram, or email us at lifeisforthelivingpodcast at gmail.com. The Life is for the Living podcast is written by me, Rebecca Richmond, and produced by Marco Burlo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>